So this evening I'd like to speak about balance in terms of the five spiritual faculties. And sometimes this is known as the five spiritual powers. A few years ago when I was doing some personal practice in Burma, I had an interesting encounter with my teacher. And I went for the usual interview that I go to. And um, sometimes what he does is rather than report, he starts asking me questions and uh, wants me to respond to the questions. So the, the question he asked when I was walking in was, uh, what is equanimity? What is equanimity? And so what I knew about equanimity was that it was a feeling and a kind of a space of the mind that's very balanced, spacious, and calm. There's a lot of clarity. And that's what I answered him at that time. And that wasn't necessarily incorrect. But he said it in this way, which I had never heard before. He said, equanimity is like a chariot being pulled by five horses. In the lead is mindfulness. And behind the first pair of horses are faith and wisdom. Behind that, the second pair is concentration and energy. When faith and wisdom are in balance and concentration and energy are in balance, the lead horse, which is mindfulness, has little work, has little work. So it's just, I really took that in at that time and thought, oh, what he's asking me to do is really to check uh, so that mindfulness could be stronger and just have little uh, lessened work to check faith and wisdom, to check concentration and energy and see where it is in my own practice. And then he said, the chariot is led powerfully, easily, smoothly to the ultimate goal of freedom, to the ultimate goal of liberation. So before I talk about the five faculties, I want to say a little bit more about equanimity, because tomorrow we'll be starting some equanimity practice in the afternoon as a Brahma-vihara practice. So just talk about equanimity briefly and uh, practically about its benefits. It's such a powerful support on our spiritual journey. And sometimes I can't say this enough because we don't realize how much balance can give us a, a sense of steadiness a sense of clarity, a sense of feeling really strong on our path. The subjective experience I just mentioned of equanimity is a spacious, calm balance, which gives us the ability to be clear-minded, to be clear-hearted about what we need to do in the moment or in the long term. Sometimes in the text, it is described as resting the mind before it falls into extremes. Resting the mind before it falls into extremes. 
And these extremes come in two forms. They come in the form of clinging and all the various ways that clinging gets manifested, attachment, holding on, uh, etc. It comes in the form of aversion, pushing away, resisting, closing down, striking out at. These are all the uh, extremes. Basically, these are the minds of reactivity, attachment, aversion, in all their various forms. So what equanimity helps us with is to be protected from this reactivity. And it's the reactivity to the eight vicissitudes of life, often spoken about in the Buddhist teachings. Praise and blame, gain and loss, which is sometimes talked about as success and failure, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. These are all part of the human condition, part of our lives. When we can't accept it, when we react to these experiences of our lives, it really causes us a lot of suffering, we can see. Of course, we can't be there like a doormat to them. We have to take action. We have to respond with words, with our actions sometimes. But sometimes our action is in the form of reactivity, attachment to what's pleasant, attachment to praise, to gain, to success, to pleasure, to fame. Reactivity to the opposites of blame and loss and failure, pain and disrepute. And these kinds of reactivities cause us a lot of suffering in our lives. We're excessively elated by the appearances of what's pleasant, the experiences of what's pleasant. We can be excessively aversive to and pushing away what's unpleasant. We can't be okay with the winds of change. And when these um, extremes come up, we can't see clearly. And therefore, we can't act skillfully in relationship to what comes up with these eight vicissitudes. We can become identified with failure, with loss, with blame, with pain. We can feel that we're always inadequate, always incapable. Even with one just small experience, we feel that it's always this way for us. We can become reactive to painful experiences in the body, in the mind. Resistance and aversion cloud our way. Attachment, identification cloud our way. So when the mind and heart is not tinged by this reactivity, it's able to see clearly, able to, with that seeing clearly, act skillfully. When there's an inner sense of balance, of equanimity, the mind and heart can be very strong. So the winds of change may come, but equanimity can be stronger. And maybe there already is some reactivity to the winds of change. And equanimity can have a second chance of coming up 
with even that reactivity and uh, kind of dissolve that reactivity so that the mind can settle down. And even though it hasn't seen clearly for a few moments or a few hours or a few days or part of the lifetime, it can eventually dissolve that place of reactivity and dissolve that inability to see clearly so that there is some ability to act skillfully. And we're more on an even keel with life. We're more able to be in life feeling very balanced, feeling very strong. So when we see things as they are, it's because there's no reactivity in the mind. There's an absence of attachment or aversion. And we can see what to do in our lives. So this acts as a practical measure to feeling deeply okay with how things are. And in that feeling deeply okay, we know what to do when things come up. It's not just that we let the winds of change batter us back and forth, but we know how to protect ourselves or how to stay stable within those changes. And it not only gives us that ability practically in daily life, but it also gives us the ability to see our way to a place of deep liberation. So practically on a day-to-day level and also on a long-term level, eventually being liberated through wisdom, through compassion, being freed from cruelty from confusion. So this is why equanimity is so important day to day and in a long-term way on our way to liberation. So when there is equanimity, more and more equanimity, these five faculties of mindfulness, faith and wisdom, concentration and energy, it's because these five faculties are being more and more balanced. These are active powers, each one of these, in and of themselves. They become stronger as the continuity of practice develops momentum. I've seen in my own practice that when mindfulness is there, Even that in the lead brings the others forth. Manindra, one of our teachers, used to always say, when mindfulness is there, it's like the mother. It brings all the other factors nearby. I remember him giving this teaching because I am a mother, so he gave a lot of practical teachings to me like this. We were on the beach one day, and uh, we were taking a walk, And um, all the children were, I have four children, they were all kind of around me. And he said, Ma, he called me Mom, Ma or Mom. He said, you know, you're like mindfulness. And I said, oh, why? You know, and he said, you're the mother, you're like the mother. Mindfulness is like the mother. And all the other beautiful factors come around. He said, you see how beautiful your children are. They're coming around to support you in being a mother, although I didn't feel that way about my children all the time. (laughs) They did make me stronger, though. (laughs) 
It's said that these five faculties tend to coordinate or corral other supportive energies or qualities in, already inherent within our mind stream. It's not that the Buddha bestows them or any great being bestows them upon us. Of course, being loved, being supported really helps. But there are already deep tendencies in the mind stream waiting to be nourished, waiting to be used so that they can be strengthened. They're part of our human nature. So by developing them to their fullest, understanding them, keeping an eye on them, understanding how to balance them, these five faculties are transformed to what is called the five spiritual powers. So that's why we hear them differently. When we're practicing them, when we're infusing them with our energy, with our recognition, with um, nourishing them, they are faculties. But once they're fully developed, they're called powers. And they're used in the final stages of liberation. So each performs its own function. And then they naturally establish balance with the others. But it's very, very helpful to watch out how they work in and of themselves. But how they establish kind of strength in all the others is, I'll give you an example. Faith brings uh, forth a confidence to put forth more energy. When we have faith in ourselves, when we have devotion to our practice, it puts forth more energy into that moment-to-moment uh, -moment mindfulness. It kindles the energy of mindfulness, the ability to just take that one next step, take that one next movement, take the one next breath with a fullness of mind, with mindfulness. And mindfulness over and over and over again on changing objects produces a kind of concentration. This concentration steadies the mind. It unifies the mind stream. It makes it so powerful that it can pierce through the illusion of solidity, the illusion of continuity, which uh, gives us the illusion that everything is permanent. It pierces through the illusion of permanence so that the mind can see the truth of impermanence. It's deeply liberating. The Four Noble Truths become exposed because it sees the truth of dukkha, the truth of the suffering of life. It sees the cause of dukkha, attachment. It sees that there is an end to uh, suffering. And it sees that there is a way to the end of suffering, the Eightfold Noble Path. So all of these together bring forth greater faith. And then it recycles, brings forth wisdom, brings forth greater faith, it brings forth more energy, it brings forth the energy to be mindful, it brings forth uh, more concentration, and so on and so forth, so that we keep going on the path. So I'd like to talk about faith in a little more fullness.
Faith provides the inspiration in the very beginning so that we can aspire to something greater than we presently know. Then the, that uh, we can aspire to something greater than we presently are. We might um, approach it as that we want to experience less suffering and more happiness. When I first came to the path, I just wanted to smile more. You know, there, there had been so much suffering in my own life that, and I see this on the, on the faces of a lot of people. Um, it, it just produces a, a place in our, kind of embedded in our bodies and in our minds where we see the suffering of life and so we feel it in our bodies, in our minds. It's hard for us to, you know, turn up the, the lips into a smile. And that's why people come to practice and say, oh, there's no joy. <laughs> we hear that even these days. There's no joy. But really, be, I, when I hear people, I, I feel the joy. I hear their joy. But sometimes the suffering gets so embedded in the body that you can't see it. But there's quiet joy. There's a quiet contentment underneath. There's quiet wisdom and understanding that's happening that you can't tell from the outside. But when you talk to people, you can tell from the inside. It's not an exuberance. It's more like a very quiet kind of simmering understanding about life. So maybe we come to it from a place of we would like to have less suffering in our lives. But maybe we come to it from a place of the possibility of full liberation. This is what we have faith in, or what there, we could have some faith in. Faith steers the mind away from doubt. It's not all the time that it does this, of course. Doubt arouse, arises in the mind many times, in a sitting, in a retreat, in the various periods of our life. As we go through different periods of our life, I remember when I was going through my early years, my teenage years, I kept wondering whether I'd you know, ever get over all the ups and downs, the emotional ups and downs that I had, um, the hormonal years of my life. And then I relived that with um, three girls growing up. And then I was going through my own hormonal years you know, during my last... Uh, child growing up. And then during other periods of my life, you know, getting just getting through the last period of my life of raising the last child and also going through a period where my energy was dropping and not knowing how I could do that. You know, there would be moments of doubt in myself. And now seeing how my energy is very different in my 60s now and not knowing can I keep living this way? You know, I have to change something about how I use my energy. So there are many moments of doubt in our personal life. It's not that we totally lose it or it totally dissolves, just to give a reality check. And also in our spiritual life, going through my practice in Burma, which I still do. It's hard, but I still do it. 
every year I don't think I'm going to go back, but I do go back and practice again. Um, there are moments when I, I don't know whether I can get through the next sitting. You know, it's hot in Burma. You guys are really lucky. I mean, if there's a little noise or somebody's talking, it's like, oh, noble silence, keep the noble silence. But when you're in Burma, it's like everybody's talking, you know, <laughs> around you. People are, you're sitting there and people are coming in front of you and taking your picture. You know, they want to <laughs> see a Westerner sitting. Um, and they want to show it to their relatives. Uh, <laughs> or the, you know, as I told you the other night, the, the people come to um, see all the others eating the food that they gave, and they're so happy about that. And they even bring the plates to you and say, please take more, you know, because they, they want to serve you directly. They want to give directly. Or just, you know, people washing the, the windows when you're, when you're sitting. It's a, I, I sometimes I wish that everybody would go to Asia and sit. They'd appreciate much more what's hap- what the kind of retreats that we have. You know, you'd be sitting in retreat and they'd be washing the window outside here and smoking a cigarette at the same time, you know, and talking in Burmese to each other until, you know, the headmaster would come along and tell them to be quiet and put their cigarette out or something. So uh, sometimes I wonder, can I go on? You know, can, can I take the next step? Can I keep going? And this doubt uh, arises over and over again. But when faith is there, you know that faith can overcome that doubt, that momentary doubt. You understand that it's just temporary. That moment of can't go on is just a temporary moment. You're not paralyzed forever by doubt. Faith knows the path of practice is worthy of our efforts. You ultimately come to that if it takes a moment or it takes um, part of the sitting or the whole sitting or the rest of the day. You ultimately know that this path is worthy of our efforts or whatever path you put your devotion on. Faith is devotion to our path. When we intelligently choose a path that's right for us, not all paths are the right one for us, but when we know that this is right for us and we stay with it, we have faith. Sometimes we talk about our doubt, but we don't realize how deep our faith is because we stayed devoted to our path. And when we can really realize that, the doubt is nothing compared to our faith. The doubt is so small compared to our faith. Faith gives the quality of heart that says, I can really be devoted to this next step. It doesn't go on and think about the next day or the whole retreat. It just is devoted to that next step or that next breath. It just takes one moment at a time. There's that Pali word, sada, S-A-D-D-H-A. And I love the meaning of that. It means to place one's heart upon, to place one's heart upon. When I see sometimes how much I'm trying to intellectualize my my way through uh, the path 
or whatever it is, some kind of understanding, or why I should continue, why I shouldn't go home now. It doesn't work. It's just like a dog chasing its tail. But when I feel that I'm putting my heart into it, when I'm placing my heart upon the path or upon what I have to do, then I realize that's where my faith is. It's not in my head. Faith is really in my heart. That's where it resides, where I can trust, where I can intuit my way through it, beyond the cynicism I may have about what's going on. So there's faith in our ability to see for ourselves. There's faith in the teaching, which um, we can only have faith in because we can keep going. We have some ability uh, to see for ourselves. We have faith in ourselves. There's faith in the teachers expressing the Dhamma. So sometimes we have to suss out which is it that we're having a problem with. If we're having a problem with faith in our teachers, do we need to do something about that? Do we need to clarify something with them in order to keep going on the path? Uh, Or maybe we need to choose something else. Or maybe, as Manindra says, when I asked him about a certain teacher long ago that um, seemed to have a lot of followers, but at the time I knew of some things that were happening around that teacher that I wasn't so faithful about. And he said to me, a perfect rose can come from an imperfect giver. Sometimes a beautiful teaching can come from someone who's not expressing other things in their life so beautifully. Faith in the teaching. Sometimes we don't have so much faith in the teaching. We hear teachings about karma, for example, or rebirth, for example, and it just confuses us to no end. Or we can't really understand that in terms of this life. And. Um, so a lot of times our teachers say, just put it aside and until you can understand it experientially. Or just take what you can experience and understand and know. And from that can you go forward. Put aside what you don't understand. And there were lots of times when I had to put aside um, teachings I didn't know or understand. And it was fine for me to do that. Mostly what it came down to was faith in my own ability to see for myself. There's a saying, a Pali saying, Ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. Ehi pasiko. There's a, there's a story about a group of peoples in India during the time of the Buddha, the Kalamas, and they were confused because so many spiritual teachings came to their land. It, I guess it was part of the path of trade, and uh, they came through that particular area. And the Buddha also came through, and they went to the Buddha and said, how do we know for sure we're confused about which teaching to follow? Do we follow this person who says that, or do we follow that person who says this? And the Buddha said something like, I'm going to paraphrase, 
do not follow something because it has been said uh, uh, for a long, long time, or, it ha- or because it has been written for a long, long time, or because uh, great people are saying it, uh, that people are saying, these, these teachers are great, and they are saying it, or because so many, there are so many followers. But basically, the Buddha said, when you see for yourself, by trying it out, that what this path leads to is wholesome states of mind and heart, and it leads away from the unwholesome states of mind and heart. See this for yourself, not just in terms of harmony outwardly, but in terms of harmony inwardly. I think this is about the Hiri Otapa I was speaking about the other evening. Do we feel the inner harmony? Do we feel the outer harmony? Does it lead to goodwill instead of ill will? Does it lead to compassion instead of cruelty? Does it lead to sympathetic joy instead of envy? When you've tested it out for yourself and you know that it's true for yourself, then follow that way. But you can't just take it in intellectually and agree with it. As we all are doing, we're we're understanding for ourselves, and this is the way. Sometimes you have to borrow the faith of the teachers. In the beginning, I had to do that. I saw that the teachers I followed were good people, and so I thought, if they can do it, maybe I can. So there's blind faith. There's bright faith, there's mature faith, there's verified faith, there's unshakable faith. I want to talk about each one of these because sometimes we might find ourselves along the way with this, or we might be able to find ways where we're not being so clear in are we being faith, are we having faith in ourselves or not. Blind faith. Blind faith, you might say, is uninvestigated confidence in what somebody's teaching or some, um, or some teaching that's come from the past and is into the present. Blind faith is misplaced trust. When we follow like sheep, because a lot of other people are doing it, not because we've tried it out for ourselves, but it may be the current um, kind of spiritual fad of the day. Nowadays, I feel like, you know, a lot of places we go to, the Bay Area and Marin County and Maui, they're all like the places where the uh, the Kalamas lived, you know. There's so many things coming that, what do we do? What do we follow? Everything sounds pretty good sometimes, especially when you don't have to do it yourself. <laughs> when you don't have to sit with the pain in the body and the pain in your mind, you just you know, listen and agree. That's really easy. Um, Manindra, when I, when I would kind of lean on Manindra in a way, and he would know that, you know, and he would say to me, the Buddha solved his problem. Now you have to solve yours. You know, he just wouldn't let me lean on him. 
he loved me and he loved all of his other students, but not to lean on him for wisdom, to really nourish it within myself. Upandita, our teacher, and um, uh, we would, at least I would have this feeling that, you know, they have these fans where actually they put their Dharma talks inside the fans and kind of read from there. But it would be like, put up the fan and <laughs> you do your own work. I can just show you the way, but you do your own work. And a lot of it, a lot of the way that we were taught is the way that we externalize the teachings also. Not, um, not requiring a dependence on us as teachers. Requiring ourselves to do the work. I remember Manindra, if students weren't investing themselves in the practice, he wasn't so interested in them. Either was Upandita. You just, they weren't just so very interested in, in extending if, if the student wasn't interested in doing the practice. Sometimes Manindra would say, oh, this person came to me and said, oh, Manindraji, first I want to travel to the Himalayas. And Manindra would say, just go, go and travel. When you're ready, come back. But if you don't come back, it's okay. You know, it would just not be like um, trying to hold on to them as students. So blind faith is like this, when we're just investing um, our trust in a misplaced way. Bright faith can overpower doubt. We begin to experience for ourselves, have confidence in our own ability. We may hear the Dhamma or any other teaching of the truth. We can be inspired by a person, by a writing that really speaks to us, by being in nature. A lot of times, nature has teachings that come without words during the season of the fall when leaves just drop. Many, many teachings come from that easy letting go. When I first heard the Dhamma, it really was bright faith for me. It felt like I'm home. It felt so familiar as if I had practiced in other lifetimes, and it does feel like that to me. Manindra would talk often of Deepama, a housewife who had a lot of difficulties uh, during her beginning of marriage and her giving birth and losing a child and going through pain in the body, pain in the mind, and yet she was an enlightened being. She became enlightened first and, and second and maybe further than that in the stages of enlightenment. And by just by hearing the stories, it was a great bright faith to me. I felt if this person could do it, you know, this person who was just very simple housewife, why not people like myself, housewife like myself also? The possibility of being fully liberated in this life was totally unquestioned by Manindra, by Upandita. To have someone in your life that can see that possibility for you is a great boon to your life. To be able to have someone know that for you, even if you don't know it for yourself right now. So this was a great boon to us in our practice, that someone 
could have that kind of faith in us so that we could develop a bright faith. Then there's mature faith. It's Mature faith is within this path of practice that deeper experiences come that confirm what the Dhamma is talking about, what was laid out, like in Dhamma talks. You begin to see what you didn't understand before. Now you understand. I bet there were times for all of you when maybe you heard the Four Noble Truths and or you heard a talk on the five aggregates or seven factors of enlightenment or dependent origination, and you would think, what is that? You know, I don't understand that at all. But later on, you, be, you come to understand what it means, and you see the actual the practicality of it. Um, one of our students called it advanced common sense. <laughs> it's just... It really makes complete sense when you look deeply into the matters of it. So mature faith is when we begin to see for ourselves and things that weren't understood before become understandable to us. Verified faith is is another kind of faith. These are all deeper and deeper faiths. This is experiential knowledge and namely, just to get to the crux of it, seeing the truth of, ex- of impermanence over and over and over again at deeper and deeper levels. Not just the impermanence of the daylight turning into nighttime or the seasons turning throughout the year or one's aging process, but really seeing the momentary impermanence so that seeing a moment disappear and another moment arise, and these conditions coming and going moment to moment to moment. And uh, in time, just really deeply coming to accept that, not being phased at all by those changes. And based on that, seeing the truth of the unsatisfactoriness of life, which means that because everything is so impermanent, How can we say that there is any lasting satisfaction anywhere? Because things are impermanent. Can't hold on to any lasting joy, any lasting pleasure. Isn't this so? It doesn't mean that there isn't joy. It just means that it becomes more precious because it isn't lasting. So we see the truth of the unsatisfactoriness of life. This is dukkha. And because of impermanence, we also see that even a sense of self keeps changing. There's not a solid core anywhere, inside, outside. There's no solidity in connection with anything else. So these understandings are born out of experience, not theory. It's not just that they make sense by hearing it, but they make sense because they're experienced moment to moment. And then there's unshakable faith, when one experiences the first path or the first stage of enlightenment, where the belief in in some eternal self dissolves. 
where all doubt is vanished regarding the path of practice. It dissolves the belief that there is some rite or ritual that is necessary for liberation. It doesn't depend on going into the Ganges River and cleaning ourselves of all impurities. So faith grows. It grows and grows and grows. And it leads to more and more energy to be present with every moment, with every changing moment. It kindles a fire of sustained effort, the continuity of practice. Of course, sometimes there's sloth and torpor. It's not always like energized. But as we go through these periods, there's more of an ability because of faith to be able to work with sloth and torpor. The willingness to continue exists. So I want to talk about energy in terms of the four great efforts because the Buddha often spoke of the four great efforts. And in fact, of all the uh, qualities of mind, I've, I've heard Steve say that the Buddha spoke of effort more than any of the other qualities that we need in order to continue our practice and be liberated. So what are these four great efforts? The first great effort is to to arouse wholesome qualities of mind that have not yet arisen. So wholesome qualities not yet arisen to bring energy to it. Or to support wholesome qualities of mind that have already arisen. So if they're already there, then give more energy to it. Know that they're there. Be mindful and give more energy. So just to stop there for a moment on the first two, give you an example. To arouse wholesome qualities that have not yet arisen. For example, take the practice of generosity. Sometimes we don't have a strong feeling to give, but sometimes we know there's a possibility to give. Say that um, we're walking down the street and some homeless person, we pass by a homeless person and they're asking for something. They, they need food to eat. Steve is a great one at this because Steve gives to everyone that asks for. It's really, you know, we might go broke someday, but he gives to everyone we pass by, you know, whether I say they might buy some drugs with that, you know, he, he just gives anyway. I say, let's go buy a hamburger and give it to them. But Steve just gives right away. So even though, then I see him giving, and I don't have this wholesome quality of giving that has arisen in me. But I think, oh yeah, okay, that's a good idea. So Steve takes something out of his pocket, and I say, okay, I'll take, I'll get my purse and give something too. So that is arousing a wholesome quality that hasn't yet arisen. Because I just think, oh yeah, it's a good idea. Midas, I'll give something too. And then supporting a wholesome quality that has already arisen. So probably you too can think of times when you've passed a, ho- a, a homeless person on the street, and you pass that person, and you go by a little bit, and you think, maybe I'll give something. And then, okay. And you know that quality's there, and you turn around, and you go back, 
and you say, I want to give to you, and you take something out, or what, what we do sometimes is we actually go buy food and we give it to that person. So it's just as simple as that. When it hasn't come, can you arouse it? When it's already there, can you nourish it by actually acting it out? So the last two of the four great efforts, to prevent unwholesome qualities that have not yet arisen and to dispel unwholesome qualities that have, have arisen already. So an example of that is, it's helpful to know what triggers us. Someone today, or was it the last retreat, I get it all merged, uh, said something about, I know what triggers me. That's good when you know what triggers you. When you know what conditions come about that can trigger an unwholesome quality in your own heart and mind, you, you try to stay away from that. Not that you're fearful or not that you know, you're, you're aversive to it, but you want to prevent the triggering of that, so you just stay away. Just, for example, in retreat, when we know that if we go to a certain place because there's a lot of energy happening there, maybe people are talking, or something's happening that's going to uh, bring us to a place of aversion, stay away from there. Just don't go there. This can really help you. Or if something has already arisen, like an like aversion has already arisen in the mind, how to dispel that? Very easy. Just bringing mindfulness there or bringing equanimity there. This is how it is right now. Just kind of allowing it to disperse like a cloud. So these are the four great efforts to arouse, un, to arouse the wholesome qualities, to support them when they've already arisen, to prevent the unwholesome, to dispel them when they've already arisen. This is an energy. What about mindfulness? And this is very short about mindfulness, because our whole retreat is about mindfulness, and we're talking about it every day, every morning. So <clears throat> mindfulness is like a mirror. Its function is to reflect. This is the function of mindfulness, not to re just reflect, to but to reflect with pristine awareness what is going on. When there is this clean reflection, things can be seen as they are. The true nature of reality can be seen clearly. Another um, manifestation, or ways that, a way that mindfulness uh, manifests, is not forgetting. Steve mentioned this at some time, not forgetting. And it's not forgetting the present moment. It's not about not forgetting the past. It's not forgetting the present moment. Another way it's expressed is remembering the present moment. Now, it's not hard to remember when, when we're given guidance. It's easy to remember. When we say, put your attention on the breath, it's easy to remember to do that. But to do that over and over again, that's the challenge. To do that over and over and over again, so that there is that kind of clear continuity that's able to pierce through 
delusion, basically. Mindfulness is carefulness, not carelessness. Being careful about seeing things as they are, basically. It's fullness of mind, mindfulness, not dispersed mind, not mind that is just going here and there and and can't really land on one thing fully. So by nature, mindfulness doesn't push away anything. You know, when there's a reflection, a clear mirror of reflection, there's nothing in that mirror that reaches out to push away what is unpleasant or to grab or to cling to what is pleasant. It just reflects. That's what its nature is. It's able to reflect deeply, not just on the surface. It reflects impermanence. It reflects the uh, dukkha or the unsatisfactoriness. It reflects the truth of not-selfness. It reflects the truth of how things are, untinged by reactivity, untinged by aversion or any form of it, untinged by attachment or any form of it. So that's mindfulness. Concentration, and very short on concentration also. Concentration is like holding the beam of attention or holding the beam of the light of attention steady on a particular experience. Now granted, in Vipassana, that experience is changing moment to moment to moment. So it's not like in Vipassana that it holds it for a long time, but it holds it for enough time so that experience can be, uh, exper- can be experienced fully, completely. And then it goes on to the next moment of experience so that there's enough of attention on that moment for uh, mindfulness to kind of sink into that experience, even if it's momentary, momentary concentration. It really gathers the attention. It gathers the attention and it beams it into one thing, then another thing, then another thing. You could say that it's unified attention on changing objects in Vipassana. When we do concentration with the same object, uh, it's, it is really uh, more samatha practice, but we're doing Vipassana practice here. We do a little concentration practice when we do metta. So concentration holds a beam of attention steady, moment to moment. And because of this, it's able to see reality as it is. It's able to see, as I pointed out with mindfulness also, the insolidity of experience, the evanescence of experience. It sees through this kind of permanence of self, permanence of anything. And then wisdom develops, which is... uh, another of these five spiritual faculties. This is the crowning virtue, 
of all of the faculties, knowing the truth, and then living in alignment with it. Not just knowing it intellectually, but knowing it so deeply that you can't help but live in alignment with it. You can't help but not hold on. You can't help. You need to just let go because things are going. If you hold on, as one of our colleagues says, Joseph Goldstein, it's like rope burn. If you hold on to a rope that's always moving, it's painful. But just, it's not like we have to let it all go so we're not living, but let it all go because it is going. Seeing it come, seeing it change, seeing it go, and knowing how to respond also. This knowing of the truth liberates us from clinging, from hatred, from ignorance, frees us from not knowing. So this kind of wisdom is experiential. It's not about book knowledge. It's not about heady understanding. It's not about understanding something in a heady or intellectual way and getting so intoxicated with it that we think we, we already know it all. But it's by really experiencing anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Anicca's impermanence, dukkha's unsatisfactoriness, and anatta's not-selfness. So all of these ways are important in our practice as pairs Faith and wisdom need to balance for the capacities of devotion, of faith, of devotion to our path, which is faith, and comprehension, understanding our path, which is what we're talking a lot about in this retreat, really understanding, developing wisdom. So having a balance of faith and wisdom, devotion and comprehension. Having a balance of energy and concentration, um, if there's too much energy, there's restlessness. There's a dispersal of the mind and the body. Uh, if there's too much concentration, there's a kind of sloth and torpor. There's torpor in the mind, actually. Uh, that's we call sinking mind, where there's too much concentration and really not enough energy. And the mind just feels... It can feel alert and alert and steady and seeing clearly. And then all of a sudden we get so um, kind of limited in the view of things because the attention is more like on one object that it, it just drops in some kind of torpor when there's too much concentration and not enough moment-to-moment energy. So these balances need to happen and they need, uh, we need to keep an eye on the, these balances. They're essential for our journey. So if we can watch these along the way, it really helps us on our path. Energy and concentration have to balance um, wisdom, faith have to balance It brings about insight into the true nature of reality. 
It manifests the four immeasurable emotions more strongly. Loving kindness, sympathetic joy, compassion, and equanimity are developed. Not just equanimity, but all of them. One finds oneself more harmonious and a naturally balanced person in life, less difficulties, able to care for oneself and one another genuinely easily. So these are the five faculties to keep an eye on. Mindfulness at the lead, faith and wisdom balanced behind that, energy and concentration behind that. So as we continue in our practice, we'll be mentioning them, checking them as we go along. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.